Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12, hear now the word of our God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. This is the word of the Lord. In Leviticus 10, we heard about how Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire and died as fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. In Leviticus 16, here in a few chapters, we are told that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, suggesting that they may even have tried to enter the most holy place. And all of chapters 11 to 15 serve as an interlude between the death of Nadab and Abihu as they tried to approach the Lord with strange fire, and then chapter 16 when we hear about the Day of Atonement, where, in a sense, everything we hear about here in chapters 11 to 15 is dealing with these questions of clean and unclean. How do you approach the Lord? How can Israel approach a holy God? We heard after the death of his sons that that Aaron and his sons are supposed to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. And these two categories are sort of, there's the, there's the holy, which is that which is devoted solely for God and his use. And then there is the common, that which is for man's use. And then within the common are these two other distinctions, clean and unclean. Both clean things and unclean things are both common. But the, there's a distinction within the common, clean and unclean, that the clean is suitable for and available for the holy place. It's moving in that direction. The unclean is unsuitable for. It is moving away from the holy place. And as we saw last time, there's another category. There's also the abomination. There is that which is detestable. You see, there are some things that are simply not okay. There are things connected with idolatry and death. And tonight we're looking at childbirth in this discussion of the holy versus the common, the clean versus the unclean. And you'll notice there's, there's nothing detestable. There are no abominations in our chapter. 
Verse 2 makes clear that the content of chapter 15 was already known when it says that as at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And you're like, uh, I don't remember that part. Right, you haven't heard it yet. That comes three chapters later. Uh, so part of it is is that the way, the way you, I haven't gone into the great detail on this, but Leviticus, to nobody's surprise, is set up as a giant chiasm. And so there's there, it's really clear that an awful lot of the material that we're hearing was already known in some form. We didn't talk about this much last week, but there's a, there are references to clean and unclean animals prior to Leviticus. For instance, at the flood, Noah already knew which were clean and unclean because he takes seven of each of the clean animals and two of the unclean. How did he know? When did God... We're, <laughs> We're not told, but so. But this is where we. There is. It's clear that the, a lot of this information is already known. What Moses is doing is codifying it. For that matter, we've heard about menstruation before and 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 sexual relations. When when God had said at Sinai, you know, He had just told the people very simply, "Do not, you know, basically, for three days, don't have sex with your wives, uh, so that you can all be ready for entering the presence of God," and. He, the way he says it assumes that they already know what all this is about. So even though we're getting the codification here in Leviticus, this stuff wasn't all sort of brand new out of nothing. A lot of this material was stuff that seems to have already been understood at some level. And the historian in me always is curious to find out how, how did they know, what did they... But the pastor in me says, I, we don't need to know. God didn't, didn't care to tell us. What, what's, all we need to know is what we know here from the scriptures. And, but since Moses assumes that you know it, let me just explain the basics. In chapter 15, uh, the, the first 18 verses deal with male discharges, and then verses 19 to 30 deal with female discharges. And uh, it's, it's worth pointing out that, that even normal sexual relations render both the man and the woman unclean. This is why God had warned Israel not to have sexual relations before they entered the worship of God. If you're going to come into the presence of the most holy God, you should have nothing else on your mind or on your body. Uh, that which is unclean has the power to contaminate. And so that's they were warned, don't come into the presence of God contaminated. Now, what's worthwhile and especially important for chapter 12 is that in the case of the woman in chapter 15 verses 19 to 30 uh, the, the the normal menstrual cycle rendered a woman unclean and we saw last time this that there was a theme with unclean animals about proper function and it might seem odd because isn't a woman's menstrual cycle her proper function she has her period every month but if you think about the, the contrast in chapter 15, which we'll look more at in a couple of weeks, but if for the man, if his seed falls anywhere but his wife, it renders him unclean. I mean, and if you think about what is the purpose of her flow, it, well, it signals the fact that she's not pregnant. It means that the unfertilized egg is passing from her body. She is unclean for seven days, and any man who lies with her will also be unclean seven days. The stain of impurity, uncleanness, is contagious. And there's a lot more in chapter 15 that will, I mean, it's actually, 
you'll get a hint tonight, but chapter 15 is a great Advent text. Um, but, um, but in chapter 12, we're told that at this point, the key, the key for chapter 12 is that a woman is rendered unclean by her menstrual flow. So if, if being unclean because of menstruation makes sense, okay, but you didn't, you didn't have a baby, therefore you're unclean, why would childbirth render her unclean? And then especially, why would a female child double the time of her impurity? What's going on? Now, many ancient peoples would quarantine menstruating pregnant or childbearing women. A, and part of this is a woman's ability to bring life into this world is a remarkable, marvelous, amazing, dare I say almost almost supernatural thing. I mean, it isn't actually supernatural. It's the way God made things. On the other hand, this is the closest we ever get to creation, bringing new life into the world. And yet, something that we tend to forget, but they didn't, is how frequently women died in childbirth. Childbirth is a very scary thing because of how commonly people died in the process. Mothers, babies. Childbirth is all about life and death. Back in Genesis 1, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Adam had called his wife Eve because she was to be the mother of all living. After the fall in Genesis 3, God had said that he would multiply pain in childbirth, but that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And where, where did that whole story take place? In the garden. In the original sanctuary. In the place where a holy people met with their holy God. Now here in Leviticus, we, have, we are hearing about how God is preparing a new holy place where a holy people can meet with him. So we shouldn't be surprised to hear all the images coming back from Genesis. Leviticus just told us about the clean and unclean animals, concluding with its prohibition of touching any swarming creature, think serpents. The seed of the serpent is at enmity with the seed of the woman. Israel, the son of God, must realize that creation is no longer simply good. The ground has been cursed because of us. Oh yes, God made all things good. But cursed be the ground because of you. And what else was cursed? The serpent. Having spoken of the seed of the serpent in chapter 11, the unclean animals and particularly the swarming things, the abominations, Moses now turns to the seed of the woman and does so in the context of Genesis 17, the, the covenant sign of circumcision on the eighth day. This was, you know, we, we've been talking about the eighth day a lot in Leviticus. Well, the original eighth day in the book of Genesis was the eighth day of circumcision. And on the eighth day, verse 3, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Leviticus 8-10 through 10 just told us about the consecration of the priests who entered their holy service on the eighth day. Any Israelite who knows the story of Abraham, which would be all the Israelites, would notice the similarity with circumcision. And they'd see, ah, the priest enters his holy service on the eighth day. 
and also every Israelite male enters into his covenant relation on the eighth day. And we need to keep in mind that in Exodus 19, God had said that Israel was set apart as a, royal, as a holy priesthood, a royal nation. You know, the priesthood of all believers is a very Old Testament notion. The problem is that a universal priesthood was unrealistic given the responsibilities of the priests in those days. At Mount Sinai, it was the young men who filled that role. And when the Levites were selected as the priestly tribe, they are explicitly connected with the firstborn as they are numbered in place of the firstborn. So in one sense, every Israelite male was consecrated to his priesthood on the eighth day. Circumcision is a sign of the new covenant, the day when Israelite boys received the promise of the new creation. The eighth day is overwhelmingly the day of atonement, the day when God's people are made clean. Circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant. Circumcision highlights, in a very obvious way, the importance of the seed. Snipping off the flesh of the foreskin would distinguish the clean Israel from the unclean Gentiles. And only those who are clean may approach the holy. Paul will refer to our baptism as the circumcision made without hands in Colossians 2, as we are washed, cleansed, made clean. The Old Testament never says that the the old law was a bad thing. Rather, it was given until the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9, until the time when Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies made without hands. The sacraments of the New Testament are designed to be simpler and without blood, but they point to the same things. Before Christ shed his blood, there was no water that could cleanse you. But because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, now we don't need circumcision. We don't need to shed our blood waiting for the seed of the woman to come. He has come. He is risen. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He has entered the heavenly holy of holies. And so every eighth day, we gather to remember how he was snipped off and how we have been joined to him. But coming back to Leviticus, note how the circumcised boy is clean. And his foreskin of his flesh is cut off on the eighth day. And the cutting off of the foreskin of the flesh symbolizes the cutting off of his old nature. But his mother cannot be purified for another 33 days. What's going on? Why why does she have to spend 40 days in a state of uncleanness? She's just brought a child. Not just a child, but a male child who might actually be the one who would save Israel. Why is she now unclean for 40 days? What's, what does the number 40 do here? Think about the flood. The flood will be an important image of what's going on here. The flood poured down for 40 days. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus will fast in the wilderness for 40 days. One common thread that runs between all these 40-day, 40-year passages is the separation or isolation of the, the party from contact with the larger community. There's, there's nothing here that suggests that sex or childbirth is a bad thing. Actually, last week I referred to the red heifer from Numbers 19. In the ceremony of the red heifer, 
the priest becomes unclean in the process of making Israel clean? What's a mother doing? She becomes unclean in order that she might bring forth a child. You'll notice there's nothing. This child had as much or more contact with her blood than anybody. But is the child said to be unclean? It's not about contact with blood. If it was contact with blood, then anytime you had an accident and you you cut your finger, you'd be unclean. It's not about blood. Notice the way it puts it in verse 4. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. It's not about how long her flow lasts. The actual period of time of a postpartum discharge can vary widely. The point is not that she is unclean until her discharge clears up. Rather, for the birth of a male child, she is in the blood of her purifying for 40 days, regardless of the actual length. Leviticus 15, we'll talk more about discharges. That'll be fun. Uh, But the the central focus of Leviticus is how can humanity enter the presence of a holy God? The holy are those things and people who belong entirely to God and his service. The common refers to everything else. And the common comes in two categories. The clean, which is ready and prepared for God's service, and the unclean, which is not ready and prepared for God's service. Now, some things are always unclean. Unclean animals, unclean birds, unclean creeping things, they're always unclean. They can never become clean. They represent creation in rebellion against God. But some things can be clean or unclean depending on circumstances. God's purpose is to move humanity from our estate of uncleanness, the state of sin and misery, to an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. It's actually, when you think about the unclean, it's not so much associated particularly with sin. It's more connected with, you might say, misery. But it's also worth noting that in the Old Testament, nothing is permanently clean. Everything can be contaminated. Even the holy can become unclean. The priests are holy, but if they touch a dead body, they become unclean. The sanctuary is holy. The inner sanctuary is called the holy of holies, the most holy place. But even the most holy place can be desecrated. This is the problem with the Levitical Code. It only works if people actually do what it says. So you might say the the good news, the gospel according to Leviticus, is that there is now a way into the holy place. The problem is that that way is not permanent. The unclean animals of chapter 11 reminded us of the serpent. The uncleanness of childbirth now reminds us of the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. We need one who will do what is promised. But then verse 5, if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Why is she unclean for twice as long as for a female child as for a male? 
In the case of the boy, the, the mother's seven days cover herself. And then his circumcision on the eighth day cuts away his old flesh and brings him into the covenant. For a girl, however, the mother is unclean for 14 days, seven for herself, seven for her daughter. And she is separated from the community for 80 days, 40 days for herself, 40 days for her daughter. If, if you think about it, the, the doubled period of time highlights the significance of the event. And the distinction may help address a common misunderstanding. Sometimes people wonder, why were only boys circumcised? Well, besides the fact that female circumcision is more like mutilation. Um, it's, it's not true that only males had a ritual for entering the Israelite community. Females are not circumcised, but they are included in the entrance rite into the people of God, namely the ritual of purification described in verses 6 and 7, because the mother, in, the mother undergoes the, the 40 days for herself and then the 40 days for her daughter, and then after 80 days, which it's not an accident that it's 8 times 10. The eighth, sort of after 80 days, she comes and makes purification for herself. Now, as you look at the ritual of purification in verses 6 through 8, you'll notice that, that when she brings this, the offering, this is to make atonement for her, to, that she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. Why does she need to make atonement? Why does she need a sin offering? It's not because sexual relations is inherently sinful. It's because since the fall, we are all inherently sinful. Atonement is made not for the child, but for the mother. Uh, Mark Garcia helps us think about how this works. God, he said, God is particularly, as he, as he calls attention to this Leviticus-Genesis interplay, God is the God of creation, of holiness, of glory, full of life. Purity, then, and the notion of being unblemished is a matter of fullness of life in the sense of being devoted or dedicated to life. Disqualification from the area of the holy comes with any lack of the fullness of life. A disqualifying thing was thus often relegated to the wilderness, the area of non-life and desolation. Because the point is not physiological. She's banned from the sanctuary for 40 days for a son, 80 days for a daughter. She might be feeling fine. Nary a show of blood anywhere. Sorry, dear, it's only day 37. Got to wait three more days. So what's the point? Well, the key is actually, it's in the term used to describe, uh, describe her in verse 7 when it says she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. Flow is a nice translation there, but um, fountain might be a better translation. It's, it's, a, it's a term used to refer to a, a source of naturally springing water. So a fountain, a spring. Uh, this is, it's a term that's used in Jeremiah 17, actually, which we read last week in the morning, where the Lord is said to be a fountain of living water. It's often used metaphorically as a fountain of life, a fountain of wisdom, a fountain of tears. Here in Leviticus, it's a fountain of blood. Actually, in chapter 20, Moses will use the same term when he says that a man who lies with the woman during her menstrual period uncovers the fountain of her blood and both shall be cut off from Israel. Okay, what, what's going on here? 
the womb is being portrayed as a fountain. And this is actually a very familiar image in the ancient Near East. Um, some of you who took literature classes a few years ago might remember certain things from ancient Near Eastern literature about fountains and wombs. And um, I won't go into detail. It's really kind of quite graphic. But, um, the, but, this, but it was a very common image in the ancient world. And actually, if you think about... Uh, Mark Garcia says it well very very nicely the overflowing dysfunctional womb or wellspring was associated with the disorder of the wilderness while the properly functioning womb wellspring was associated with the life-giving center we're used to we're used to agricultural images for sexual relations the farmer plows and plants his seed in a field so the male plows and plants his seed in the womb that the biblical image of the womb as a fountain may be less familiar to us. It's no less prominent in Scripture. In fact, if we look through the Song of Songs, there's all sorts of... Uh, I love the way the Song of Songs does it, because when you read the Song of Songs, the translations that I've seen in English, they're all very good. But just they, they translate the euphemisms so nicely, that, that which is nice. If those of you who had to endure my Ezekiel series know that, there, that Ezekiel could use imagery far more graphic and far more disturbing. But Song of Songs does it with a beautiful dance. And that's where the way in which salvation will come to the human race is through the womb of a, of a woman. If the fountain were to flow unceasingly, think about the image there. If a woman's fountain flows unceasingly, that means she will never give birth. Because she will constantly be bleeding, just to put it bluntly. So if, if all women's fountains flow unceasingly, humanity will die out very shortly thereafter. And now look back and think back to Genesis 1, when we're told that in the beginning darkness was over the deep, the deep refers to the chaotic waters without form and void, tohu, vabohu, nothing like a sanctuary fit for God to meet with man. And then in seven days, the word and spirit of God brought forth creation, bounding and ordering the waters, separating the waters above from the waters beneath, giving them bounds, putting everything in proper order. Until in Genesis 2, God plants a garden in Eden where there's a river that branches into four and God has ordered all the waters so that things flow properly until, so that was our seven, when do you get the first 40? The first 40 comes in the flood when the fountains of the earth are unbounded. The fountains of the deep burst forth. The chaotic waters prevail over everything in 40 days and after 40 days we're told the fountains are closed. Why is a woman said to remain in the blood of her purifying for 40 days? Because if every womb continues to flow, this flood will destroy humanity. Every time a woman bears a son, we see a picture of creation, uncreation, and recreation. We see the picture of creation as she bears, bears a child. We see a picture of uncreation as, as her flow is, is in danger of flooding the world. And then recreation as God restores and re reheals. 
Redemptive history is recapitulated in daily life. This, I mean, scripture does this all the time. You know, Proverbs 5 uses this image powerfully. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The themes of idolatry and adultery connect regularly throughout Scripture. So so we shouldn't be at all surprised to see proper sexual relations used to illustrate God's relation with his people. Which means that the female body has a peculiar relationship to the holy. There's a way in which... there's, there's, there's no comparison in any, anywhere in Leviticus. From, sure, in chapter 15, we'll get men and women on discharges. But there's nothing like chapter 12 for men. Because men never give birth. Chapter 12 is, shows how woman's body is connected to this story we're telling about the holy place and how God's people relate to how, how can his people approach a holy God? Notice in the provision for the poor in verse 8 that at the end of the time of her purification, she must bring a, a year old lamb for a burnt offering or in two birds if she's poor. And after the priest makes atonement for her, she will be clean. Now, we're never sure how well Israel did at doing what God actually said to do. Uh, it's, po- it's possible that the story of Elkanah and Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 recounts something like this. It doesn't go into detail, but that, it looks like that's what they're doing. There's only one time in Scripture that we're told specifically that somebody did exactly what we're told here. And that was when Joseph and Mary came to the temple in Luke chapter 2. They come bearing Jesus <laughs> the eternal Son of God. But bearing Jesus, the eternal Son of God, rendered Mary unclean. You can't escape it. How did bearing the eternal Son of God render Mary unclean? Why did she have to bring a blood sacrifice to purify herself from that impurity? This should be conclusive evidence that there, this is not about the, anything about sinfulness of sex. Mary had never had sex. She was a virgin. Nor does it imply anything sinful about the child. We know Jesus was perfect. Rather, what this shows us is the true humanity of Jesus. It shows that he was indeed born of a woman, born under the law. She took the uncleanness of childbirth upon herself as we just sang tonight, thank you, Peter, to show God's love aright, she bore the world a savior. Leviticus 12 is preparing us for understanding how the eternal Son of God could be born of a woman. It's not the child, but the mother who is rendered unclean by childbirth. Because as, just like the priest with the red heifer, in order to bring salvation to his people, the priest became unclean. In order for Mary to be the vessel who would bring the Holy One to us, she became unclean. 
Now, what do we do with this? I mean, we, obviously, the church has not maintained this practice of mothers being unclean or unfit to enter the worship of God for 40 days, 80 days. What? Why not? Well, part of the reason is because we, we no longer are anticipating the fulfillment of the promise to Eve. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it's important to keep Paul's pronouns clear here. She, singular will be saved through childbearing, might even be translated through the childbearing, if they, plural, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Why does Paul switch from the singular to the plural? Well, because the specific promise of the seed of the woman has been fulfilled in the childbearing, in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that there is only an analogical continuity Yes, women still bring forth covenant children, taking upon themselves the danger and peril of childbirth, facing death so that they might bear new life. And as such, there is certainly a Christ-likeness to childbirth, and the pains of childbirth for the Christian woman are truly a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But there is also an element of discontinuity with the Old Testament purification laws, Why Paul uses the singular, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Because he's not saying that every woman needs to bear children. After all, he's the same Paul who in 1 Corinthians 7 praises singleness as a Christian calling and calls Christians to regular marital relations without any hint of impurity. As One of the early fathers put it, by passing through all the stages of life, Christ Jesus has sanctified all stages of life. As he passed through the womb, he rendered it clean. No longer would a woman's menstrual flow be considered unclean because Jesus has brought cleanness in his cross, in his resurrection. Jesus broke down the wall between Jew and Gentile, symbolized in the food laws. So also he has broken down the wall between male and female, symbolized here in chapter 12. Boys and girls are baptized together. Men and women equally partake of the Lord's Supper. Singleness is now a blessing and eunuchs are welcomed into the kingdom of God because the seed of the woman has come. Because Mary bore Jesus, she took the uncleanness upon herself, as it were, for the last time. I realize there are many other women for a few more decades, but still, through her taking that uncleanness upon herself, Jesus is the one who has now taken all of our sin upon him, that in his death, in his resurrection, he might bring life to his people. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us and help us to live as your holy people. We we thank you that you have brought life to the dead in the death and resurrection of your Son. And we ask that you would help us to, to live as your holy people, as those who are no longer under the, 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 the curse of, of sin and death, 
but as those who are now joined to the life of your Son, may we live faithfully, humbly before you, trusting that you will continue what you have begun in us until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, have mercy on those who who are suffering and afflicted. Have mercy upon Wade and Eileen in the death of Wade's mother. Lord, have mercy upon the family and, and grant to them your comfort and your grace that you would sustain and help them. Lord, have mercy upon all those who who are afflicted and and bowed down in their distress. May you draw near to those who are troubled and raise them up. Lord, help us in our several callings, in the work that you've given us to do, to show forth the love of Christ to those around us, that we might bear witness to Jesus in our words, in our deeds, in our very thoughts, that in all things that we say and do and think, we might be for your glory and for the honor of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.